I think we'll go ahead and get started. I scared Pastor Brian this morning. I said, because I want to start a fight in the church today. See if I can do it. Who is more vain, girls and women or boys and men? Who is more vain? Well, we're talking about in terms of your personal, your personal uh, cleanliness and looks. Women, hey, men do not have vanity, uh, little vanities, do they? They don't sit at them and look at the thing. However. Look at the way some of these guys dress, and everything is perfect. I'm vain. Now, I'm growing this part of my beard down here because what I really hate about getting old is this old man's gobble down here. Seriously, that's what I'm doing. I cover it up because I can't stand it. I always said, I ain't never getting one of those. Well, gee, it sure happened. So you all need to pray for me. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love us so much that you set your plan of redemption in order that we might be saved, that we might grow and become like Christ, and we might spend eternity with you, our Lord and our God. We pray that you'd help us understand today as we try to study these things that sometimes they are difficult to understand and they get complicated. We just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what you would have us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So that wasn't that big of a fight, was it, Brian? Yeah. (laughs) He honestly says, well, I don't know if I want you to do that. (laughs) We're continuing the last part of our study on canonicity. And what we got to was the formation of the New uh, Testament uh, canon. There are kind of four points I want to bring up to you. The, the number one is the first time that there was a list of the exact 27 books of the New Testament was done by uh, Athanasius in 367 A.D. Now, that may not be really important to you, but what happened was he listed the exact same 27 books that we have of a New Testament that we have now in our New Testament. Number two, the first church council to list all the 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 of the Old Testament was, was the Council of Carthage in 397. <clears throat> the Council of Carthage was, this particular 397 AD council was the third of the, Carth, uh, the Carthage um, councils, and they weren't all that important as compared to some that had gone before. But what they did do is list the 27 books of the Old New Testament and the 39 books of the Old Testament. They did that in this. <clears throat> Unfortunately, they also listed some of the apop- uh, apocalyptic books such as um, Maccabees and Esdras. But as we talked about last time when we dis- discussed the Apocrypha, 
even these early church fathers did not accept the Apocrypha as written, inspired, canonical books of, of God. Now, certainly, particular New Testament books were um, accepted or acknowledged as scripture earlier than that, earlier than this 397. And most of the New Testament books were accepted in the era of the New Testament or, or the apostles, with the exception maybe of Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude. Those took a while to be accepted in, histori- in, in history to, to do, but they eventually um, became noted as canonical books. You see, remember I was telling you, it's a process. Remember we were talking about uh, progressive revelation on our first study back? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. It took them a, 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 some time to recognize it because there were churches in the east and there were churches in the west. And one side might recognize another and another might recognize one other. And it took time for them to get together and see. You know, they didn't have internet. They didn't have telephones. You know, they had camels and that was it. Donkeys, maybe. So it took quite a while for, for those two to meet up. Nevertheless, all those in the New Testament were proved to be accepted in the canon after a period of time. And they had gone through a series of tests or principles to to prove which uh, which was to be accepted. We'll talk about that later. The New Testament closes with a warning that no other words ought to be added or taken away from Scripture. Listen to Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, Revelation isn't the first time God's word says not to add to or take away from his word. That was also found in Deuteronomy 12 to, or, or 4, 12, and in 12.32, Proverbs 36, and Jeremiah 26.2. These warnings, this one particular uh, Bible scholar says, these warnings here in Revelation against altering the biblical text represent the close of the canon. Scripture is done. Old and New Testament, you better not add or take away from it. Anyone who tampers with the truth by attempting to falsify, mitigate, alter, or misinterpret it will incur the judgments described in these verses. Number four, there has been no viable um, candidate to the inclusion of the canon. Since then, for hundreds of years, once it was closed, once it was accepted, no viable candidate, regardless of what the Mormons say about their books, and regardless of what Dan Brown says about the, his book, The Da Vinci Code, it just is closed. The New Testament writers also affirmed other New Testament writers. They accepted... All of the apostles accepted the inspiration of Scripture, of the canon, the, I mean, the, the Hebrew canon. 
it's kind of strange then, if not real, that they would also affirm each other's writings on the same level as the Old Testament writings. But they do. Listen to Peter or 2 Peter 3, 10 through 16. It's a long portion, but you'll see why it all fits together and why it makes this point. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are all in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, brothers and sisters, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, which in, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, based on what he's saying, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Don't you thank God for that, that he's patient with us? As also, and he says, the long-suffering of the Lord is, is salvation, as also our, brother Paul, uh, our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him by God, has written to you, as also in all the epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they also do to the rest of the scriptures." So Peter here is placing the writings of Paul on the same level as the Old Testament, uh, as the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Paul is making a point here. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on... The foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. So Paul is saying here that the writings of the apostles are on the same level with the Old Testament prophets. Do you all see that? How we how that worked together? So let's talk about the principles or the tests of canonicity. How did the church recognize which books were canonical? There were certain tests. They were tests, principles, guidelines that they used to uh, look at and see what it is. I've got four here. Apostolicity. Was the author an apostle or did he have the connection with an apostle? For an example, Mark wrote under Peter's authority. Luke wrote under the authority of the apostle Paul. That's that. That's apostolicity. Then the acceptance. Was the book accepted by the church at large? The book's recognition given to a particular book by the church was important at that time. Did they accept it as God's inspired word? It's not if you get a warm fuzzy about it, because you can do that by reading um, R.C. Sproul's book or John Piper's book. You can get warm 
fizzies, <laughs> warm fuzzies and feel excited about it. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a recognition of the inspiration of God. This is the standard that they rejected books such as the Gospel of Peter and Thomas. Now, there were some that were delayed, as I mentioned before, of, of becoming uh, canonical or recognized as, as canonical, like James and Jude. reason James and Jude were in there, because they were, who were James and Jude? Yeah, they were half-brothers of Jesus. So that's pretty authoritative. Then we have the content of each book. That should reflect confidence of the doctrine that has gone on before. Again, remember we talked about progressive um, revelation. And like in Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke in various times and in various ways. So it's not going to contradict what, the, what, what had gone on before. So Matthew is never going to contradict um, Leviticus, and Paul in the First Corinthians are never going to con uh, contradict any of the other Old Testament scriptures. So it has to do that. That's the content. Then there's inspiration. Did the book reflect the quality of inspiration? The Apocrypha and the Pseudo-Apocrypha -apoc uh, uh, was rejected for not meeting this particular uh, uh, criteria. No. The book should bear evidence of high moral and spiritual value reflected by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's that idea. This is how Norm Geisler kind of summed his thing up. In, he had actually five questions that they would ask. One, was the book written by a prophet of God? If it is written by a recognized apostle or a prophet, boom, it was in. That's just the way it happened. <clears throat> The second one was the writer confirmed by acts of God. Think of Moses and the miracles that he did. When you're talking about acts of God, that's what he's talking about. Think of even the apostle uh, Paul and Peter when they prayed for people who were healed. Remember, Jesus told them, greater things shall you do. Well, that's what, that's what they're talking about there. Then, does the message tell the truth about God? Is he the triune God? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, God in, 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 come in the flesh? God cannot contradict himself, nor can he utter what is false. So, no book with false claims about God can be from God. That's why we as Christians reject the Book of Mormon. It, has com it comes up with a lot of strange stuff. Four, did it come with the power of God? Is that the one I just did? No. Early church fathers believed the word of God was a living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, consequently, it ought to have a transforming power of God in affecting changes in people's lives. Fifth, it accept, was it accepted by the people of God? A prophet or an apostle of God was confirmed by an act of God and was recognized as a spokesman by the people of God when they received that message. So he sums it up in this. The most important distinction to be made at this point is between determination, we talked about that, I don't know if it was last time or the time before, but between determination and discovery of canonicity. God is the sole, solely responsible for the first, that is determining 
canonicity because he inspires the word. Man is responsible merely for the last, recognizing that the word is from God. That a book is canonical is due to divine revelation and inspiration. How that is known is, is to be true in the process of human recognition. How men discovered what God had determined was by looking for the earmarks of inspiration, those five things. Then he puts them together. It was asked whether the book was written by a man of God, who was confirmed by an act of God, who told the truth about God, man and sin and salvation and all that, and did demonstrate the power of God, and was it accepted by the people of God? So, any questions on that? Because textual criticism is next. Anybody? Since inspiration, by its very definition, extends only to the original manuscripts, and since there are no original manuscripts, how are we to know that we can rely on the accuracy of our modern Hebrew and Greek texts? Textual criticism. Bill McRae, who wrote a book, is called The Book a book to die for. He says, textual critics in every age have faced two major problems. Those two major problems are the problem of no original manuscripts and the problem of errors in the copies. Initially, they appear to be insurmountable, especially in the 18th and early 19th century. To many Christians, uninitiated into the problems of the text, they at first are very disturbing. Opponents to scripture constantly revert to them as ammunition in their assaults on the reliability of the Bible. We must know and understand both of these problems if we are ever going to be able to give an answer to an anxious inquirer or to contend earnestly for the faith. That's part of what we want to do in this class. In our day, most of the New Testament students and scholars use one of two Greek texts. The first one is the Nessaoland, Novum Testamentum Grassi. Nessaoland, New Testament Greek, in its 28th edition. The second one is the Greek of the New Testament. At least they simplified the name, the Greek of the New Testament. It's also called the US, UBS, which is for the United Bible Society, and they are in the fifth edition of them. Both of these volumes are exactly the same Greek. There's no difference. Where they have the major difference is, is in the apparatus. You all know what an apparatus is? You can look in your Bibles. If you have a study Bible, it will say the NU or the M or something like that. That's an apparatus. It'll tell you what those manuscripts or, you know, what that papyri read or whatnot like that. That's the apparatus. And, and the USB um, did less of those, but the ones that they did have were more extensive. So they, they wrote more about it. Those are the only two differences. So what is textual criticism? Dr. J. Harold Greenlee, who wrote the introduction to the New Testament uh, Textual criticism says that textual criticism is the study of copies of any written work which the autograph, the originals, 
is unknown with the purpose of ascertaining the original text. By the way, do you know what manuscript means? It's two words put together, manual and script, handwritten. That's what it's talking about, manually written. So that's what those are. And when we're talking about those manuscripts, those were handwritten copies. They didn't have printing presses up until the 15th century. So everything was copied by hand. Here's another definition by Kurt, Dr. Kurt Daniel. He says, textual criticism is the science of studying ancient manuscripts to determine the authentic text of the Bible. That's what we want to look at. Textual criticism is absolutely necessary precisely because we don't have the original manuscripts of Moses' Pentateuch or Paul's epistles or the Gospels. Textual criticism, by the way, only deals with Hebrew and Greek, has nothing to do with English. Now, the English translations are supposedly based on these texts. That's why you'll see some differences in, say, the Old King James and the New American Standard, why they have differences, and, that, and that's the difference. It's the text that they use. Because of the wealth of the materials and the difficulties in the many languages that they used, uh, that was used in these manuscripts, it makes textual criticism one of the most difficult um, areas, sciences of, of Bible study. Now, the textual criticism explained. Here's the stuff of textual criticism. There are two basic types of textual criticism, if I can get the word out, that's used by scholars, both liberal and conservative scholars. And it's important to distinguish these two because you'll see what camp we usually, as conservatives, stand in. Higher criticism looks at the outside factors of a book. It asks such questions as, who wrote the book? Why was the book written? Where was the book written? When was the book written? To whom was the book written? And then they go to outside factors that influence the writing of the book. These questions are not in themselves bad. We do that every time you study a scripture. If you have a, a study Bible, you'll go to that and it'll give the history, who the author was, what the time was. So those are not bad things in and of themselves. However, many who become involved in what is known as higher criticism also become geared to attacking the Bible as to its authenticity and its Trust, uh, trustworthiness, especially those in the 18th and early 19th century. The father of this, oh, I can't father on myself. The father of this higher criticism is a guy by the name of Julius Wellhausen. Wellhausen, if you want. Germans say Wells. Wellhausen. He formulated and popularized the theory, documentary hypothesis. Here's to put it simply for you. Well, Wellhausen taught that the books of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, was not written by Moses. Moses lived, and, and you'll see why this makes sense. Moses lived from about 1520 B.C. to 1400 B.C. Wellhausen says, uh, other people did this. They completed it years after he died. 
He postulated that the Pentateuch was the efforts of four separate sources. This is where what has become known as the JEDP theory. These are the supposed sources that they used. J stands for the document written in 850 B.C. You see how, how much further down history that is? It's called the, the J document because it's use. It, it's, 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 I was talking to Laurel and say, what if I had, like Ron Paul did, you know, one of those things that happened when you're talking to a stroke? Yeah. I fumble enough, so I don't need one of those. It's called the J document because of the extensive use of the word Jehovah. I don't know why they didn't use Y for Yahweh, but they didn't. So it's the J. The next one, the E is a document because it uses, ex not exclusively, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the name for God, Elohim. And it was said to be written in 750 B.C. The D stands for the book of Deuteronomy. It, what's interesting what they do with that, they said it was, it, it's called the Deuteronomy one because it was said to be a scroll, the scroll that Hilkiah the priest found during the time of Josiah, the king of Judah. Remember Josiah? He was one of the good guys, one of the best kings in all of Old Testament. But he didn't live that long. He lived from 639 to 609 because although he humbled himself, although he tore down all these things of, of uh, pagan worship, he got a little arrogant, and he became king at age eight. Eight years old. You got a king eight years old. And then when he was 16, God touched his heart, and he said, we need to start making these changes. You know, our, our nation is really, think of our nation, but our nation is really bad off. Let's get back to what God's word says. And so when they found that, he really worked on it. Well, that's that one. P stands for the priestly document written 450 B.C., and it's the one that contains all the genealogies and lists and regulations on the sacrifices. You know, when you're reading Leviticus, the part you want to go to sleep on, that, that's the kind of stuff he's talking about. Wilhausen did not believe in the inspiration of God's word or its inerrancy. He thought it was full of mistakes and fallacies and myths. The second type of, of textual criticism is what is called lower criticism. This method, you know, there, there are a bunch of names under all these. And, and I would, if I'm not boring you enough, I'd really bore you by listening to all those. And I wouldn't want to go through all the things that they do. It takes forever. But under this category... Their textual criticism says, because it deals with the manuscripts of the text of Scripture, that's what it does. It deals specifically with the text. It's not going outside here or outside, doing any of that kind of stuff. Its objective is to determine as closely as possible the correct readings of the manuscripts. And the study of textual criticism isn't new. The early church father, Origen of Alexander, wrote a book 
on the Old Testament that they called the hexapla, H-E-X-A-P-L-A. It's a six-column synopsis of the Old Testament. And it was in college. Anybody seen a parallel Bible? They run like King James, uh, New American Standard, Revised Standard Version, and you have as many as it you can get. There are a whole lot of them out there. Well, that's what this one did. They used the Hebrew that had a marked consonants in it. They used the Hebrew, that text that was transliterated. Transliterated means taking one letter from one language and put it in the letter of another language. Alpha, A, that type of thing. <clears throat> then the third one you used was Aquila's Synopsis. Uh, a translation into the, the Old Testament into the Greek. Then the translation of Symmachus, uh, the Ebionite, his translation into the Greek. And a revision of Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated into, into Greek. The last one was, was Theodosian. Theodosian was a, <clears throat> a Jewish scholar. Uh, he translated the Hebrew into Greek around 150 A.D. So that's what Origen used. Now, we have all that, but what substantiates our understanding here of the manuscripts has been, especially of the old, and we talked about this before when we discussed the the Dead Sea Scrolls, they added a great impetus to the science of textual criticism. What about the reliability of the biblical documents? Can we demonstrate by combine, and we can demonstrate the reliability, and there are three issues that I want us to deal with. Um, Josh McDowell used a system of doing that, <clears throat> and he got it. For, I, I wish I remember. I should have written the guy's name down, but but he did that. What he uses his historiography and a literal criticism. Historiography is the history of writing but the history of especially writing the history based on critical evaluation. So you see how that plays into what we do with the New Testament. Let's see where I am. Here are the three tests. One is the bibliographic, should be on your outline, the bibliographic test. The second is the internal, internal test. And the third is the external test. The first one, the bibliographic test, examines the Bible's trans, uh, manuscripts. That's the one we like. The second tests <clears throat> the claims made by the biblical authors. That's another one we like. The third also looks outside for confirmation of biblical context, and we like that one too, because anything that validates the authority of Scripture, its tr- the trustworthiness, its reliability, we like. The bibliographic test <clears throat> examines the transmission of the text of the Old and New Testament, as best they can anyway, from the original autographs to the present day. It's how the copies and translations got made and how accurate were their translations. Three aspects of this test are quantity, quality, and time span of the manuscripts. Quantity of the manuscripts. How many do we have? The Old Testament, we have less than we do of the New Testament, and that's because of the Hebrew manuscripts and the guys who did it, who were the Jewish scribes, the Sopharim and the Masoretes, because they were extremely ceremoniously zealous, 
about keeping imperfect and, um, uh, and worn out manuscripts from, from being passed on. But the existing manuscript, Hebrew manuscripts we do have are supplemented, like we said before, by this, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, which is the 3rd century B.C., the Targums, which were ancient um, paraphrases of the Old Testament, as well as the Talmud. Talmud is Jewish teaching in commentaries on the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. The quantity of the New Testament, I hope this blows your mind, is unparalleled in ancient literature. As of 2013, there are about 5,836 Greek manuscripts. It may not sound like such a big deal, but we also have 8,000 Latin manuscripts, another 1,000 manuscripts in other languages such as Syriac and Coptic, in addition to 86,000 to 100,000 plus quotes and citations by the New Testament early church fathers. Now, contrast that. I have this outline. I mean, this handout I wanted to give you too when you get, if, if I have enough. This one is dealing with what we're talking about. It is called Manuscript Evidence for Superior New Testament Reliability. The New Testament, in contrast with the number of existing manuscripts and copies for the works of antiquity of Greek and Latin scholars or authors, such as Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, Tacitus, those only number from two to 643. The 643 is Homer's Iliad. That's it. That doesn't even come close to what we have for the manuscripts for the scriptures. Not even close. What about the quality of it? How good are they? Quality of the Old Testament manuscripts are excellent simply because we know what the Mesorets and the, the uh, Sopharim did. Because of their reverence, their extreme care, these Jewish scribes were type A personalities. You remember, we told you what the Sofar and Sopharim meant, that these guys, the scribes, were counters. Remember that, counters? They counted the number of the letters, words, and lines in the middle of letters, books, and of the, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. Counting all of the books, all of the lines. If one part of a single mistake was discovered, the entire manuscript was destroyed. This is how type A they were. When they scribed the name of God, Yahweh, they used a brand new scribe, and then once they wrote it, they destroyed it. So these counters were very, uh, and praise God for it, because that really helps us. They were very, very uh, meticulous about what they did. The quality of the New Testament manuscripts is better than any of the other manuscripts of ancient documents in history. Now, because we have these thousands of manuscripts, we also have a whole lot of variants in those manuscripts. But that's not a problem. 
or it shouldn't be seen as a problem. Because what they do is then, with those manuscripts, well, they see manuscript A says this, B says this, oops, C says that, we'll set it here, D says this, and, and on like that. What they do with that is they'll take that manuscript and they'll look at it and say, which one best explains what the word is and what was being said? So that's not a problem. Some of the variants got into the, into the text, the manuscripts, for two primary reasons. One, visual errors. Anybody start writing, you know, what was that letter? Right? But you might keep on until you're done. I didn't mean that. Or if you're, type, if you're like me, I get a lot of errors when I'm typing. Now I'll go back and, and uh, edit. Well, <clears throat> these guys couldn't do that because it was all, you know, ink on these uh, papyri, so that, that was hard for them to do. And also, the second one was auditory. Often, there would be a scribe up there, and you have all these little scribees out there copying, and he would be reading the text to them, and often they might not hear the right word. Like, there or they are. There, there, Right? So who knows when I'm saying there, what is it? They are or there? Same idea. New Testament can credibly be regarded as 99.5% pure. And the corrected readings of the variance, 0.5%, can often be determined by fair degree of, of probability through this textual criticism. How about the time span? How far removed are they from the originals? The earliest Masoretic manuscript, as I said before, was 895 A.D. 895 A.D. Again, this was due to the systematic uh, destruction of worn-out uh, uh, manuscripts by the Masoret scribes. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mentioned this last week too. When we got that, we jumped 1,000 plus years back. That was the most phenomenal, at least in the 20th century, uh, find for manuscriptural evidence. Anyway, the New Testament. The (laughs) The span of the New Testament manuscripts is exceptional. You'll hear about this when I tell you. The latest is like 200 A.D. The earliest is like 30, 45, 60, 74 A.D. This is the time that the apostles lived. Most of them, manuscripts are are going back to that that time. Remember I told you about the John Ryland's uh, um, papyri? It dated like 125 A.D. So these are things that, go, that are, <clears throat> have allowed us to understand much better in the, and, and the scriptures be able to look at them and say, yes, this is, we have some real stuff here in history that validates what we say. Sir Frederick Kenyon, he was formerly the, the head librarian of British Museum in, in um, the British Isles. That is a big deal. He was the, the head librarian of the British Museum. This is what he wrote. No other case in interval of time between the composition of a book 
and the date of the earliest extant, that means existing manuscripts, is so short as that of the New Testament. That means none that he has seen at, you know, when he studied it came close. So the Old Testament and New Testament enjoy far greater manuscript attestation in terms of quality, quantity, and time span than any other ancient book. So what about the second test, the reliability, the internal um, Test. This one, did, it asks, <clears throat> of the biblical text, what claims does the Bible make for itself? Some people use this as circular reasoning. <clears throat> reasoning. <clears throat> the Bible is the word of God. How do you know? The Bible tells me it's the word of God. Well, how do you know that's the word of God? Because God says in the word that it's the word of God. So they often get blamed for that being circular reasoning. <clears throat> that may sound like that, but the truth is what it does is it really, what we're doing with that is we're trying to examine the truth claims of the authors and allowing them to speak for themselves. What did Peter say about inspiration? What did Paul say about inspiration? That's what this one is doing. A number of the biblical authors claim their accounts are primary, not secondary. It's not secondhand. <clears throat> that most of the New Testament was written by men who were eyewitnesses of the events that were recorded. Let me give you an example. John 3.35. This is John writing. And he who has seen these, who has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. So that you may believe. I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. I saw this. This is what John's saying. In, in, in John 21, 24. This is the, uh, the disciple who testifies of these things. And wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. One more. Second Peter. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, in this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I, Paul, uh, Peter, I'm going to die. Shortly, I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful. He's telling them, he's leaving them a record. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you are always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunning devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. Hear him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his, this voice which came from heaven, which we were with him on the holy mountain. I was there, Peter says. I know this happened. We're out of time. So I'm going to have to pick the rest of this stuff up next time and try to go into the... Whew, the next one's going to be interpretation. That's going to be another biggie, but let's pray and close. 
Lord, sometimes it's hard for me to get the words out that I want to say and help folks to understand it. So we pray that you do that as we think about these things and maybe as we study them on our own that we might know more about your magnificent word. Pray that you bless the pastor and the service um, as we uh, enter into that today and may you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.